magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. Welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host, Warwick Schiller, and today I have a very, very, very special guest. I have Madison Shamba, who is otherwise known as Mustang Maddie, and if you aren't familiar with Maddie, Maddie's a three-time extreme Mustang makeover freestyle champion. She was the 2017 Mustang Magic Mustang Magic champion, and she performs with her her Liberty team of Mustangs all over the country, and has taught and judged all around the world. And her work has featured on Animal Planet, wow, in Cowgirl Magazine and Horse and Rider Magazine. So here we have the one and only Mustang Maddie. Hey. Thank you for that introduction. Wow. <laughs> I, I looked it up. <laughs> oh, I thanks for interwebs. having me. Oh, hey, no nice. problem. So how's it all going? Where are you right now? Because you normally travel quite a bit. Are you in Colorado? Yeah, I have not been traveling very much at all recently. I'm in Ridgeway, Colorado, um, and then I'll head to Arizona likely for the winter. So. Yeah, that's where I is. You going back to the same place I ran into you down there one time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so, how's the whole COVID thing been for you? I mean, you're you're a mm. I mean, you're a bit of a road warrior, so must <laughs> be odd being in one place for a long time. Yeah, it is odd. I mean, I was getting to the point where I did want to spend more time at home and off the road, um, but it seems like once you have it, like the <laughs> the grass is always greener on the other side, kind of thing. I do miss it, and it's it's different. But also, I was already planning this year on taking time away from traveling and um, developing my online course out more. So it ended up working well for us. We're really fortunate to be able to have that going. Um, but it's not the same. I just, I really miss teaching like, and seeing the other person, you know, like, uh, I don't know if you feel this way when you teach online, but it's almost like, you know, a singer or something going up to perform and it's like empty chairs. Like you can't see or feel the audience, you know, and read their energy. And it's just a weird feeling doing everything virtually. Oh, so you've been doing virtual lessons. I thought you meant mm-hmm. just filming stuff because I, I don't really do the virtual lesson thing, but I do, you know, I film a lot here at home and mm-hmm. and that's almost like for a singer recording in the recording studio, in the recording studio. but there is, I, I know what you're talking about, there is a, like an exchange of energy mm-hmm. when you're working with someone and, and you know, facial expressions and, and, and you just, as well as the verbal things they say, mm-hmm. you know, you really read their energy and read their body language and you really, you really understand if they're getting it and um right. and especially like say doing the whole the horse expos and stuff when you have larger crowds of people mm-hmm. and they're and they're getting it you really get yeah I, I don't know I feel that energy often yeah exactly that's exactly how I feel and yeah I do so I'm doing an online course so I'm not doing like a lot of virtual lessons but I'll review like little video clips you know and let them know my reviews but that's really and then like answer questions in the forum. But other than that, yeah, it's just like you were saying, like recording and kind of putting it out there. <laughs> so tell me, you, um, was it this, you're quite the journeyer on this journey that a few of us are on. It wasn't this year. When did you go and hang with, didn't you go hang with like some shaman or medicine man or something <laughs> like that? Oh yeah. Well, I went to Peru last October. So 
Uh, or actually it was two years ago, maybe now, which was really fun. I mean, it was fun to just experience a different culture. You know, they're much, I think, older than us in the United States in a lot of ways and have healed a lot around colonialization and all that kind of thing. And just to see how rich it was in tradition. And I mean, it, it was really incredible. So yeah, I've been, you know, I've been kind of on that journey of, of healing and um, awareness and things uh, since um, I hurt my back. Um, but right before I started traveling, so 2016, I think, um, that kind of led me down that path. <laughs> and quite the path it is. Um, so you went to Peru. You weren't doing anything with horses in Peru, is that right? It was all Maddie, no, Maddie no, stuff, I went with, not horse stuff. Yeah, which was interesting because it was one of the first times I've really traveled without it being horse or work related. And it was a group of girls that um, are here in Ridgeway, Colorado, that I went with. And we tra- I mean, we traveled all over Peru. You know, we started like in the in the city and then to the mountains, the jungle. We met a lot of interesting characters and yeah. But I mean, you know, too, it's like everything is everything else. Like when I was in Peru, I brought so much back that then changed my work with horses. Like everything's so connected. So it was interesting. And and was that the, the others you went with too? It was all like a bit of a healing kind of a journey, like a self-development sort of a thing. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Self-development, spiritual. Yeah. That's cool. So maybe I got the story wrong, but I thought I thought it was uh, maybe earlier this year you were with some like a Native American something or other. Oh, oh, I was doing um, I was doing an apprenticeship with um, a woman, yeah, who um, uh, works with the Navajo Native Americans and worked with an elder there. Um, Broken Foot was her name, and so I've been really interested in indigenous, you know, ways of being. I think that there's a lot of healing in that compared to how the world is set up now. And then also in this time we're in not like being really sensitive to, you know, like cultural appropriation. And, you know, I think we as white people can go to want to get all the wisdom, but then we fail to acknowledge, for example, the state and the plight of where Native Americans are at now and the realities of everything. So yeah, it's just kind of integrating everything, like really wanting to soak up all that wisdom and knowledge while at the same time being really respectful and gosh, there's so many layers to that I've been thinking about as far as our ancestry goes and feeling connected and things like that. But um, have you ever heard of the book, Neither Wolf Nor Dog? No, but I'm going to write that down right now. Oh, you would love it. I The whole time I was reading that book, I was underlying it, dog-earing every page. And I'll just like, oh my gosh, I would just like scream out loud being like, this is so amazing. I think you would really like it because it it goes into kind of this journey with an Indian elder and he's sharing wisdom and a lot, you know, on relationship with white people and what the reparations look like. And uh, it's just, it's life-changing. It's it's really good. Really? You'll have to look that up. Neither wolf nor dog. Yeah. Wow. You know, I'm I'm reading a book slowly right now because it's one of those ones you've got to chew on it a while called Calling Us Home by a fellow named Chris Luchow or something. He's got the – he's Nordic, so he's got the two dots over a, a U in his name, I think. But it's basically his journey investigating shamanism in different places around the mm. world and just some of the – like the he gives you exercises to do in the book. And the first exercise, it's so cool, and you've probably done something similar, but they want you to go out – and sit in nature, and it's almost like a meditation. You sit there, 
And all they want you to do is just be aware of your own body. So just, you know, like mm-hmm. a body scan or just get into your own body. Mm-hmm. The second part of the exercise, you do the same thing, but you go out there and you just observe. You sit there and you just observe without judgment. Mm. You just, and it's like for half an hour, 45 minutes of time, you just observe without judgment. Look at the birds, look at, and they say if you sit there still long enough, where there's no wildlife, pretty soon there'll be wildlife if you can just be still long enough. And then mm. the, the third part of that exercise is they want you to go out and just listen. Just be mm. aware of what you can hear. But at yeah. some point in time, and this is the really cool part, some point in time you get to where when you go out and you sit, you don't observe your inner body and then separately observe what's going on. You observe what's going on and you mm. take in, they want you to take in like 40% of your perception through your eyes and they want to take in 60% of your perception through your bodily sensation. So you're basically yeah. feeling what's going on not necessarily just looking at it through Mm -hmm. eyes but feeling the landscape you know and i was like and and that that's early on in the book i mean it gets so much better but it's oh it's such a cool book and i'm really really loving that stuff i was talking to someone um yesterday on a just on a skype call and she has studied a lot of shamanistic practices around the world and things like that and she's talking about how the the neuroscience we're understanding these days about healing things lines up so much with ancient wisdom. It's it's not funny. Like mm-hmm. it's it's scientific, but it just proves mm-hmm. before they even had the science to prove it, what the, what they were doing was so mm-hmm. spot on, you know, and I'm pretty sure you may have found that with the broken foot and your bit of a journey to Peru. Yeah. Well, the limits of logic, like we are, I love, you know, how you're talking about in that meditation practice or that, that first practice in the book you're reading, it's really about feeling versus thinking. And our society is based on and rewards thinking over feeling, right? We have a deprivation of feeling and we are always in our heads, hence, you know, all the anxiety and mental health things that we're going through and stuff like that. But yeah, it's just a whole different way of being in the world. And it's a part of the world versus like being on top of it or like just the feeling of being so connected to everything, right? And having a direct relationship with that wisdom. Um, like, and just listening to your the inner guidance that you have. Like, I think right from when we have children, we're telling them, you know, if they want answers, we'll pick up an iPhone and look on Google and look outside of yourself versus, you know, go sit under the tree holding a feather and see what answers come to you. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I just, about three and a half weeks ago, I went to a uh, three and a half day, what was called a men's emotional resilience retreat. And so there was Mm -hmm. me and six others. And I was led by this guy, he's a former combat soldier, uh, spent two or three years traveling around with Tony Robbins doing Tony Robbins' things. And he's, he's wow. looked into almost everything. And I've, <laughs> and I've, I've done some searching the last few years, you know, from, mm-hmm. you know, talk therapy, EMDR, uh, you know, all sorts of different things. I, I think, you know, I don't know if you know, I went to Florida and did a three, three day ayahuasca ceremony okay. uh, a couple of years ago. How was that for you? How was it? Um, you know, after going there, I wasn't sure I could ever do it again because mm-hmm. it's the scariest thing. Like when you it just you just peel back all the layers mm-hmm. of stuff that's hidden and you get mm-hmm. to look directly into the abyss. Um it was it was helpful. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this 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 thing I went to three and a half weeks ago did more for me to to get 
all my emotions working more than three years of therapy and and the the three day ayahuasca ceremony really? and all that yeah and it was yeah it was it was amazing and I'm not sure what you just said that made me want to do about that you asked a question I forget what it was but yeah so but some of our a lot of our homework from that is we're following a book called the presence process mm-hmm. and one of the things you have to do is sit down twice a day first thing in the morning last thing at night and do this breathing meditation for 15 minutes and mm-hmm. it's just a it's so it's it's there's no pauses in your after your in or your out breath hmm. and you and you go uh, so as you breathe in and out and in and out in and out you have this mantra i am in this here now mm. and you just have to keep your breath going and oh it's it's interesting because what what the the homework's supposed to be is after a while stuff starts coming up mm-hmm. you know uh past stuff comes up whatever and even if you don't know what it is you ask the question but then you kind of forget about it. If you don't mm-hmm. get the answer right, then you forget about it. And at some point in time, the answer will come to you. And it's mostly about getting answers from out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Kind of what you were talking about right there is 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 mm-hmm. that that wisdom is out there and you've just got to be able to mm-hmm. tap into it. But before you can tap into that, you kind of have to tap into to right. you. you have to get out of your head and into your body. Yeah. Yeah. Well, out there, or is it in, in there, you know, like it's, yeah, well, it's all connected and integrated. That's really neat. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And that whole weekend was all about getting out of your head and into your heart because most men Mm -hmm. are not in there, you know, they're in their heads and all this other stuff's closed off. So yeah, it was, it was fascinating. And it's, it was kind of one of those things to where, wow, if every man could experience something like that, the mm-hmm. world would be a completely different place because, yeah. you know, are you a fan of Brene Brown? Oh, I love her. <laughs> I love her. You know, one one of her, one of the, she says that she used to only study uh, women and girls mm-hmm. because she's mm-hmm. not worried about the men. She's worried about the women and girls. But then at some point in time she said, I realized that if we're doing nothing for men and boys, we're doing nothing for women and girls. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's all connected. And the the whole, you know, feminist movement, how we've seen it in the past is all about, you know, kind of women almost being more masculine instead of embracing, well, what is divine femininity anyway? And, and seeing that when we can liberate our men, that's when we're liberating our women as well. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Yeah, that, that whole weekend thing was actually based on a lot of the stuff that it was based on a book called, I can't forget which order they go in, but King, Lover, Magician and Warrior. It's kind of like mm. a Myers-Briggs test and okay. it all fall into one thing. But but the, the, the whole thing was is you've got to be, they call it the hero's journey and the king comes up with the quest. He has the vision and wow. then the, the, the lover brings the, uh, the emotion and compassion mm. and all empathy and all that stuff to it. The the magician, he's the that's the head stuff. So that's yes, right, right, wrong, yes, no. That's all the logistics. And mm. the warrior is the, the doer of deeds. But every single one of those has a shadow side. And mm. the shadow of the lover, so if you get that part wrong, it's either depression or addiction. Okay. So the shadow side of the lover is is depression or addiction. The shadow side of the magician is um, you're either a tyrant or you are passive aggressive. The shadow side of the uh, warrior 
was either a sadist or a masochist and the shadow side of the king is the prince and the prince <laughs> does things the king does things for the vision for the for the good of all mm-hmm. and the and mm-hmm. the prince does things for external validation mm-hmm. and that the is whole so great. week it was cool but the whole weekend was about these days men do not have initiation ceremonies into manhood and so yes. you know we're all a bunch of adolescents running around and we're right. all stuck in the prince energy we're all doing stuff Yep. for that external validation rather than doing it for the good of the whole or the the right. vision and the thing i and i got and so written that that book the king warrior lover magician book um you know it talks about that the the real masculine energy has a lot of you know a lot of compassion and mm-hmm. empathy and that sort of thing to it and it's it's the prince energy that has all the what we tend to think mm-hmm. of as masculine, you know, the right. the fighting and the arguing and the the dominance and all that. That's all mm-hmm. prince energy. It was fascinating. But anyway, after going to that, it's like, oh, if every if every man on earth could oh, experience one of those things, there probably wouldn't be any wars. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love I love how you talked about you know the shadow side in terms of. You know, I would normally think of like wounded versus divine, like shadow versus light or whatever, but of it just being underdeveloped because it's so true, the lack of initiation um, and how that impacts men. And then also seeing how, you know, I loved how you talked about the prince and king and for women, it's the princess and the queen, right? And so the princess is also activating, you know, the prince energy, like those work together. So the wounded feminine would be like, I don't know, um, relying on everyone else for answers, the yes girl, the good girl, you know, and over-functioning in some areas for the prince, for example, like feeling all the emotions and the prince can't. And so it's so cool when we think of embodying like the king archetype or the queen archetype, which that's been a big, I feel like I've been, you know, on a fast track with that because I was totally the yes girl and all that for a long time. But when the masculine is in service to the feminine, meaning it's coming out of a place of emotions and being connected, then they're serving a vision that's bigger than than themselves. And then they're directing all of that action-oriented energy in a way that benefits the whole rather than the self, such as the Prince archetype shows. Yeah, it was, yeah, the whole thing was, the whole weekend was fascinating. And, you know, something that I really got out of it that was, Oh, it was amazing, but I suppose, you know, Brene Brown talks about, Brene talks about, you know, vulnerability and when you become vulnerable and let out your your shame, you find that people don't make fun of you, but they actually go, yeah, me too. Yeah. But you always will tend to think that, oh, only in certain places because, like, for me, I've never been, like, a manly man and, and a mm-hmm. lot of these fellows at this, at this thing were manly men, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking... Oh, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna let out all my fears in front of these guys, and the, the, you know what? What they did, I tell you what. The first night we got there, so it was we got there Thursday afternoon. We had dinner Thursday night, and then we sit around and basically introduce ourselves. And they said, "What we want you to do is introduce yourself, and then give us something that rhymes with your name, just so people can remember it, you know, and tell us something you've never told a soul in your life." Uh. <laughs> That was the first thing right off the bat, first night. Wow. And the guy, and the guy, the guy running it says, and I'll go first. And he spits out something and it was damn near horrifying actually. And so it was kind of like, 
the call to the call to arms sort of thing, and so everybody started spitting wow. stuff out. But the, uh, and that was the start of it because over the weekend you get more and more vulnerable and more and more connected to these other guys. But what I found was what was amazing to me was they all had the same fears I did. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. might be big, tough guys who've done all sorts of crazy things. Mm-hmm. They still had the same fears, and that was like, wow! I never, mm-hmm. ever, never in a million years would have thought that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I've always that's had a, such a good point. I've always had a bit of a freeze response, and always been kind of shameful of it. But some of these guys who are big, tough guys, their tough guy response is the same reason they have the shame, the freeze response. So it's all, it's all fear. But some people, mm-hmm. their fear, they run away some people they mm-hmm. overcompensate and they get aggressive and angry and whatever and you know mm-hmm. so yeah it was it was it was pretty darn interesting um life-changing really it sounds like it and I love how you talked about the part about vulnerability and realizing that opens up the door for like oh me too I've gone through something similar I think so often we think our hardships are a block to connecting or relating to other people because we feel so alone in them when in reality it's the bridge that brings us all together like that's the human experience is going through pain and trauma and you know like by never talking about it like I love I love how you right away in the retreat it's like wow like opening the conversation by saying tell me something tell us something that you've never told anyone it's so different from the regular narrative of this surface level of connection, right? Like, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Good. <laughs> you know, like we, we, but as soon as you start to share and you're the person, you know, the first person who in that interaction, you know, when someone asks how you are, say, we, you know, actually today it's been really tough. I've been going through this or this, you know, you open the door for that person to like kind of burst through the shallow surface level connection and be like, oh, thank, thank God someone else who is, you know, is giving me permission to be real and be honest and authentic. And until we present that side of ourselves, I think we're always going to feel lonely and disconnected. Yeah. It was funny. You said when you were talking about Peru and you said it's like an older culture and stuff and mm-hmm. uh, Robin and Tyler and I were in Morocco last year. And what I loved about that is when they say hello, so they say uh, salam alaikum, which is peace to you. But they put their hand on their heart and they look you in the, and it's not like, g'day, how you going? Because when you say, mm-hmm. g'day, how you going? You don't expect an answer, a, a real answer back. It's just like right. a, a right. greeting. But, but they look at you and they go, salam, alaikum. Or I they speak that. French there as well. So the French, they're bonjour, ça uh. va? Like they, they put their hand on their heart and they lean forward mm-hmm. and look you in the eye when they go, ça va? Like, how are you? Wow. 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 Um, I mentioned it, I think I mentioned it in an earlier podcast, but um, the, we stayed in the British ambassador's residence there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole week we were there and the, the British ambassador's youngest daughter, she was eight and she'd come downstairs every morning and I'd be, I'd be up already and she'd, she'd come along and she, she'd say, good morning, how are you? And I'd say, I'm well, how are you? She goes, I'm good. And she'd reach out and touch my forearm and she'd go, and did you sleep well? <laughs> and she was right there like it wasn't like oh, it wasn't wow. a, she was concerned she was it was a mm-hmm. genuine question did you and did you sleep well and so yeah cool. genuine yeah genuine like invitation to go deep versus like the agreement to not go there <laughs> you know it's that's really cool yeah and uh, you know i sent you a bunch of questions that you could choose choose to uh 
which ones you wanted to answer. And all those questions I sent you, I did a podcast a little while ago where I answered every one of those questions. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions was what what quality what quality do you admire in other people? And I mm-hmm. and I when I answered that, my old answer used to be um, bravery. Uh-huh. Because I because I think it's the thing that you don't have that you kind of wish you had, sort of thing. I said, but that's my old answer. But these days, these days, my my answer is open hearted people, open heartedness. Mm, that's so cool. My answer is so similar, and my old answer would have been so similar as yours as well. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing how that. Yeah, yeah. You start down this rabbit hole, it kind of changes everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, my old answer would have been um, someone who works hard and grinds and is relentless, you know, in their pursuits. And now it would be a person who is willing to feel it all, who's willing to go to the dark places and kind of, you know, break this experience I think we're in now where you know, everyone just wants everyone to feel happy and keep dancing. And you take, you know, there's a quick fix for everything to get you feeling good. And it's so revolutionary to think like feelings are for feeling. I know, you know, Brene Brown, like, you know, she's talked about, and I've heard you talk about how you can't numb out all the so-called negative feelings and expect to be able to feel joy and, and all of those things as well. And, and I think that for me, the quality I would admire most, the willingness to feel all of those things and to just fully be alive, that leads to other qualities. Like that to me is like one of the sources of other qualities that I would admire in a person, such as compassion and empathy, because how can you be truly compassionate and empathy and be willing to sit in the mud with someone if you're not, if you can't tolerate those feelings within yourself, you know? So like, if you can't tolerate going to those dark places within yourself, if you have a friend or a significant other or whatever, that's experiencing those, you just want to fix them, bring them up. You know, Brene Brown talks about, you know, true empathy is going down into that hole and just sitting with someone and trying, instead of trying to save or rescue them. And when you feel those dark things and you come out of it, then you realize there's nothing to save this person from, right? And you don't need to be that. And you see how capable they are on their own. So that would kind of be more my answer now, <laughs> now, nowadays. <laughs> and and so the, the, the qualities you used to admire, what is your, um, what is your take on those qualities now? My take on those qualities is not rejecting them, but seeing the duality. Um, I think it was Carl Jung who said the closest thing to truth is paradox. So I see the value of taking action and working hard, but it comes from a different place and knowing that there's a time to rest and be still. And so for me, when I started my business, for example, oh my gosh, it was just all of this doing energy that that had no source or direction. It was just like, I always have to be busy, always have to be doing things. And there's so many layers to that. But when I stepped back and I, I totally like downscaled my business, like no events, like just took time to like go within, um, now everything's easier. Like it doesn't have to be as hard. And sure, there's times where I'm going to be working really hard, but it's a different kind of energy. And it doesn't feel like you're forcing something. It feels like, you know, when you're just in the flow and it's going. So it's like, if something is really difficult and there's resistance and it feels like I'm pushing, well, is there a message in that, you know, versus just keep, keep pushing and keep going. So. 
do you feel that that maybe people who always have to be doing something all that pushing 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 mm-hmm. it's just numb it can be just numbing yeah we're all we all take our own medicine right like whether that is um, alcohol, drugs, uh, work addictions, uh, eating a certain way, over-exercising. I mean, we all self-medicate. And for me, that was one layer of it was self-medicating and numbing through work. Like if I didn't have something going on, God forbid, I'd have to feel something, you know, like if I wasn't constantly chasing a rabbit. So there is that aspect. It was also the I am what I achieve kind of thing. And and my my ego and self-identity being attached to what I accomplish. There's that. And, and there's also like a tra- just a trauma response. I mean, there's so many layers, I feel like, tied up in that. You know, we talk about the spiral. It's like I could probably dish out like 20 different layers behind that pattern. And and that's it's been a process of discovering all of those layers and healing all of those layers within the past few years. And you just get these, you know, kind of gold nuggets picked up that you begin collecting that slowly start freeing yourself from that pattern. But, you know, one big thing actually was, you know, Bobby Kerr, right? Mm -hmm. I think he's great. I've really enjoyed the few times we've gotten to work together. And he, I remember like, it was a while ago, he commented on a Facebook post I made about feeling like overwhelmed or something like that. And he was like, well, just remember, you know, you make your own schedule. And I'm like, how simple yet how profound, right? Because you always think you're the victim and everything's happening to you. And I don't have any control over this. And that's where the anxiety is. And the moment you say, oh, I'm committed to this pattern, what inside of me is committed to this? That's when you start finding the answers. But that's the first step is like owning it, seeing awareness and then taking responsibility. And that day when he like left that comment, it was just so simple yet so revolutionary, you know? I was wondering what you were going to say that Bobby said because I was thinking, I bet it's very <laughs> philosophical Will Rogers type philosophy, you know, old cowboy oh, logic. Sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> He's so great. That is very, very cool. Okay, let's get to some of these questions because I can tell that you and I could just chat forever and we'll get to like two and a half hours and like and haven't asked the question. So if you guys haven't listened to the podcast before and you're here because the marvelous Maddie's on here, I have uh, about 20 something questions I give everybody beforehand and they get to choose five or six of the ones they'd like me to ask them. Um, so anyway, Maddie, favorite book, what's your favorite mm-hmm. book? or not necessarily your favorite book to read, but one that you feel everyone should read? This Okay, so this one was my like one of my favorite questions, but also so difficult because I love reading books and I like travel with more books than I do clothes and like it's just an obsession. But I'm really loving a book that I'm reading right now, which is kind of typical whenever I'm reading. The current book I'm reading is always like the best book in the world, you know, and get on a good one. But um it's called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Have you read that? You know what? I haven't, but I've... <sighs> Podcast with Brene Brown. She had Glennon on it and talks about the book. And if if anything, listen to the podcast. Um, but the reason I guess that I would choose that one is it's because it's kind of integrating all of these important lessons that I feel like I've been learning the past few years and lessons that help us, you know, in this journey of healing ourselves, but also, of course, healing the world around us. And the way she does it is so powerful because it's through story. And I think that telling through story, I think, is um, story or any kind of art form 
just gets people to feel something, you know, versus just laying it all out there. So I love how the book is set up. But as far as the importance of it goes, untaming, you know, it's the process of remembering who we were before the world told us who to be. And so that's been a huge theme, you know, of, of my own journey for a while. And, and I think too, working with the wild horses, it's like, you are teaching them how to be in the human world, right. And respond versus react and give them all the tools that they need for that. So you're gentling them, but at the same time, they're rewilding us if we let them. Um, so it's, it's really incredible. All the layers she peels back in that book through these really powerful stories, um, about what it means to rewild ourselves and, and live authentically and be true to ourselves and, you know, stop self-abandoning ourselves, listen to our truth. And, and a big lesson too has been embracing your sensitivity um, and using seeing how powerful your sensitivity is versus something to be stuffed down or, you know, um, overcome, you know, like you were talking about earlier, how about bravery um, and, and courage. And what does it mean to be courage? Is that, you know, it because in our in our society, I think a lot of times we think it's to stuff down the sensitivity when in reality, I think that is what is going to help the world heal. So, wow. Um, while you're talking about that, I just thought of something that you said a little while ago that that is profound. I don't know if people listening actually got it or not, but when you were talking about feeling your emotions mm-hmm. and then you, you and, and, and sitting with them but then you said on the other side of that when you get through that mm-hmm. then you become someone you could not have been if you hadn't done that so it's not, it's not even <sighs> yes. just the fact that you, you it's not even just the fact you you can be good with those emotions and not think of them as something bad but be able to sit with them mm-hmm. and learn lessons from them because that's that mm-hmm. that homework I'm doing from now men's retreat thing that whole breathing thing is when when emotions come up you you want to focus on them and sit with them and and you get you get Mm -hmm. information you get answers from sitting there with them so it's not just it's not like yeah you should you should get good with your emotions but Mm -hmm. there's a there's something on the other side of that that you can't get Mm -hmm. without going through Mm -hmm. that and I think basically what you were just saying right then is is pretty much um part of that Exactly. And she has a a whole chapter on that and a few chapters that talk about that. And she talks about how pain isn't tragic, it's magic, right? Because it does, it's the alchemy of of what it means to be human to transform, you know, lead into gold and to find the lesson in it. And to every, I really love too what she talked about how now when she experiences a really painful time, because she has been sober now, she's feeling it all, you know, and she says that there's the duality again, right? You're in that moment and you're saying, gosh, this sucks. I'm never, like, it feels like I'm never going to get through this, you know, and this is awful. But then there's the other part of it that you feel like every time I've gone through this pain and come out the other side and felt liberated and a new version of myself or a deeper version of myself or more fully integrated, the more times that you do that, the more you start to trust the process and you say, I don't know where this is going. I don't know where it's taking me, but I can have faith that I'm going to come out of this and get whatever it is that I needed. And she writes that, um, you know, when she says pain isn't tragic, it's magic. She says that suffering is tragic. And she defines suffering as suppressing and not not be, being willing to sit with that pain and feel it. And she says that what scares me more than feeling it all is missing it all. 
right? Missing that next version of yourself that your pain is asking you to be. And she also writes, being a human isn't hard because you're doing it wrong. Being a human is a human is hard because you're doing it right. Like so often we think there's something wrong with feeling those deep, those dark things and like it needs fixing versus just feeling it. So Yeah, I don't I had a um a magic moment when I did the podcast with uh Jane Pike here a while ago. I love she, Jane. Isn't she amazing? <laughs> She's um, so incredible. She is. So she was talking, we're talking about a lot of this sort of stuff, and I was talking about the fact I've always had a freeze response, you know, being kind of judging myself for it and stuff like that and she, and, and and acting like that freeze response was was my enemy sort of thing. It's mm. It's got in the way. And Jane mm-hmm. totally flipped the switch and she said, you have to remember is that freeze response was your best friend at a certain point in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was there mm-hmm. for a re- it was there for a reason. It was there to look after you. And I went, "Holy cow! I never thought mm-hmm. of it that way." You know, yeah. it's, it's supposed it's supposed to be there. Yeah, I mean, if you you know look at looking at the trauma research and things like that, it's it's nature's gift so that the gazelle doesn't you know feel yeah. the pain as they're being teared apart by a lion. And and some people. Well, I think of this with people and horses to say that everyone needs to come out of freeze may not be in their best interest long term. And that's where, like, even as you're on your healing journey, you realize you really don't know what's best for everyone because that implies different things for different people. I think of it with horses like I wouldn't necessarily want to bring every horse out of freeze mode, the ones who have adapted, you know, and that's the hardest thing ever in my life I've had to do is show a horse another way and wake them up out of that and then like they go back to that world. Right. You know, just recently on my Facebook group, there was uh, someone for some, I don't know why, because when I don't usually sh- let people post things about other people, but someone posted a picture that had been on a, a Facebook post about they tied their horse up to the fence and it dug a hole two and a half feet deep, you know, mm. and all the uh, newly awakened people who now know what the freeze response oh. is, yeah. All went crazy like, oh, that's that's just that's just um uh, <laughs> you know, that's just getting the horse to shut down and then not going on and I was I haven't done it yet, but I'm thinking of doing after what you just said is mm-hmm. sometime that you know, when a horse is in that that shutdown state, they're protecting themselves. And it's there for a reason. And I'm not, you know, if, if you have the ability to deal with and help a horse through what comes after that, great. Mm-hmm. But but if you don't, they might be better off being there. Yeah, I, I do you know, agree with that, you, Warwick. You don't know how mm-hmm. to help them through the next the next part. Um, it's so and it, it's so interesting. It's like the Kruger Dunning effect or whatever. You know, like yes. you start educating people about the, all this stuff with horses, and they had no clue before. And let's face it, neither did I. But then you get people who tend to think, oh, all shutdown is, mm-hmm. is, is bad. But if you think about the mm-hmm. way Jane put it when I talked to her, it's like, hey, it's there for a reason. And, and, mm-hmm. it's, and when they're in that state, they mm-hmm. don't feel bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, of course, we would love for that to not have to be the reality for humans or horses, you know, that, that, that everyone could have the potential to feel alive and, and, joyful or peaceful or whatever it might be. But yeah, I mean, 
I I agree. It, it is their friend. As you see someone, you know, whacking a horse as hard as they can to get them in the trailer and that horse is just frozen there in all four feet. I mean, they're gone and that is serving them <laughs> in that place. So yeah, I I think when you went for a human, when they come out of freeze or shut down, because work, I can relate to you of being frozen for a long time. Um, you do go through an intensity of feelings and it can get really, really dark. You can get really, really low. And if you don't necessarily have a container to support you through that, then I think Sarah talks about this too with uh, Sarah Schlope. Is that how you say your last name? Mm -hmm. Uh, With Yeah, yeah. So she talks, yeah, like there needs to be a container there to help the horse, you know, process it if you're going to open that up to go in it. So so yeah, and I, I really think it's important what you talked about, about the newly awakened. So when you wake up to kind of be even being aware that freeze is a, is a thing and that a lot of horses uh, experience that. So you're newly awakened and then you said there comes this, It's you can nail it every time, newly awakened, and then you become kind of a crusader of of this thing and, and a lot of judgment enters. And so how I've kind of made sense of this, because I think it's so important to talk on because then we perpetuate the very thing that we don't want. But the road less traveled, I think it was, had like kind of these different levels of awareness kind of laid out. And the first one is just kind of chaos, right? So we don't know what's happening. We don't know why our horses are doing this. We think that they're, you know, bucking, bolting, freezing is just them being stubborn or, you know, dominant, whatever. And then we go from there to, and he calls it a certain thing, but this kind of this fundamentalism, right? So we maybe learn about the different types of reinforcement and the different reactions that our horses go through. And we kind of fit everything into boxes and the world is making sense. And we love that because now we feel safer. We have a sense of control. The world has meaning. It's more predictable. We can explain things and that, but we can be very, um, uh, polarized and just this black and white thinking that's not very accepting or tolerant. And we project all of our stuff onto everyone. And then I think from there, the next level is going into embracing this duality and, and your Facebook post the other day, I was literally just writing about this for my students. You said it depends. That's the best advice because that's when you've gotten to this third level of awareness, right? Where you see, the gray and you embrace the gray and you move away from the black and white thinking, but every stage serves you in some way that fundamentalism, black and white, it does help you make sense of the world and, and see, th- you know, and get some structure going. But yeah. So if you guys listening the the post that Maddie was referring to the other day, so my wife just bought a new reigning horse. He's a stallion and he's deaf. He's a, such a cool dude came to us quite, you could say shut down like in his own head like you know you walk up to him he just kind of stands there and doesn't move and he's he's basically like yeah you can do whatever you want Mm -hmm. um and so we've started working on having him come out of his shell Mm because i want i want the whole i want the whole horse and uh you know i we've done a lot of just approaching him and what like he's he's got these big blue eyes because he's got a white face and as you approach him his eyes you can really see them turn away from you and I'll just mm-hmm. approach him. I his eyes turn away. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just stop, and step back, and after a while, you do it enough. And after a while, they're like, "You saw that? You kind of get me." So that was kind of the first thing we did. Um, but he didn't really want to engage with that much. So then I started feeding him cookies, and he's a stallion. But this is a whole. It depends. I started feeding him cookies until, and and the cookies is not to bribe him to do anything. The cookies is more counter conditioning. 
that I'm going to approach you and your perception of me approaching you is going to be different. I'm not just going to approach you only when I want something. I might have something for you. Really aren't doing the cookies anymore now because they served their function. You walk up to him, he kind of turns his head towards you and comes over and engages you with his mouth. So we rub him around the lips or whatever. But the video that I put up on that post, I was, we're at a horse show in Idaho last week. So we only had him for five days. We went, went away to a week horse show. And I um, went in his store one day and sat on a bucket. And he came over and walked up behind me and he sat his nose on my shoulder and was sleeping with his nose resting on my shoulder. And the It Depends post was, I'm not saying you should do this with your stallion, mm-hmm. but I'm doing it with this one because this mm-hmm. is what he needs. And also I can read the situation. I have mm-hmm. pretty good situational awareness about that. So I kind of, the reason I had it as a It Depends post is because I don't want everybody to think, yeah, well, if you get a stallion, first thing you do is start shoving cookies in their mouth and letting them sleep with their head on your shoulder. Turn your back to mm-hmm. them and let them sleep with their head on your shoulder. So it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely an it depends. It all becomes it depends. But I think initially you've got to have that level before that. I mean, I like mm-hmm. to quote Sir Richard Branson that owns Virgin Atlantic that, that says, uh, in order to break all the rules, first you have to learn all the rules. And I think exactly. having that very, that very structured training mm-hmm. stuff, um, I think pe- most people need to learn that so mm-hmm. they don't get in trouble. So then you can start to, to bend the rules and, and, mm-hmm. and do things you shouldn't do with every horse, but it works with mm-hmm. this horse. But you have to be able to read this particular horse at the time. And, I, and I, you know, you, you probably can't learn to read a lot of horses if you only have one horse anyway. But so mm-hmm. I don't. You know, that that second level, that that very structured, you know, whatever, I, I don't think that's a bad place to be. Mm-mm. No, it's not. I think I think the shadow side of it is feeling self-righteous once we make these discoveries and maybe we're working through our own shame of, you know, treating horses in ways that we thought at the time were were great. And then we realize, oh, that wasn't so great. And so when we don't deal with that shame, we project it, you know, onto other people and are quick to criticize what others are doing when really that that brings more separation and and then then you know versus connection which is ultimately what we want for our horses too is that connection but i i love how you said you know it does come with a certain experience right to get to the it depends mindset because now you're looking kind of internally for answers versus externally right and we talked about that earlier with the shamanism and peru and everything like that so to for people to get to that point where they can go internally and say, okay, am I going to let this horse rest his head on me? You know, in this context, does that feel good? Does that feel right based on everything I know? And that's operating within the gray area, which um, this is interesting. Um, You know, talking about, I know that I serve a lot of women and I know you do too, Warwick, but talking earlier too, to circle back to our talk on the wounded, um, archetypes and feminine and masculine energy and the princess versus the queen, the princess wants all of the answers and wants to be just staying, I think in the black and white and having someone or something tell her exactly what to do because she doesn't trust herself. And if we can get our clients, for example, who are operating within the feminine paradigm to the point where they are in that queen, where they're, you know, this is you and I teach, I think similarly in the aspect where I know you teach people your principles, right? And it's like giving the people, it's like giving, empowering the learner versus saying, you always have to come to me for the answers versus here's the principles and this is how that, you know, they operate. 
So anyways, it's interesting because I think some that's where the deeper work comes into play because some people will stay at the point of black and white fundamentalism looking externally for answers because they have a lot of healing to do before they can say even like, I want to be able to get to this gray area and actually trust myself for what feels right for me and my horse. You know what I mean? Yeah, most certainly. And, you know, the thing is, is, is just not being judgmental about anybody. Whether mm-hmm. I heard a great saying a few years ago that you can be right without being righteous. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I like that one. Okay, I'm going to ask you another question here. These, we may have covered this already, but uh, what, worth, worth, what worthwhile thing have you done that changed the course of your mm-hmm. life? Okay. So the thing that came to mind first when I saw this question uh, was I'm not going to say necessarily my college degree was the most worthwhile thing because I still haven't gotten it either. (laughs) But I um, kind of was all over the place in school and ended up going with communications. And I took this class that I really, it was just something that was required. It was gender communications um, because I, yeah, because I majored in communications. And it was just something I wasn't really anticipating to get much out of. It's just, you know, you check the box off to say that you did the course. And I met the most influential teacher I've ever had. His name was Ralph Webb. He was this older gentleman. And I ended up missing so much class time that year that I almost like wasn't going to fulfill all the requirements to get through the course. And so he offered for me to come into his office, like during office hours to do like an in-person kind of review on a book that I read is kind of, so he basically gave me like an extra assignment to help me um, get the points I needed to get through the course. Cause I was absent so much. So anyway, cause I was training horses full time <laughs> and living two hours away. But so I come into his office and the book that I had read, cause he kind of gave a list of ones that, that I could read. Um, it was called half the sky. And that book talks about just the, um, the horrors of, you know, what, what women go through all over the country and, or all over the world, sorry. And just really takes you out of your privileged box of what you think the world is. And at that time, you know, I was in my stage where I was very shut down, very guarded, very tough girl. And I go into his office and I'm going through the book review and I just start, like I break down in tears and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm crying in front of you. Like, and he's just like, has this very knowing look, like he's just like this old wise, like, uh, yeah. And he's like, well, it sounds like what you're learning is that you're a humanitarian, you know, and that book and that professor really shifted me because I realized how passionate I was about the human side of things. And I didn't want to just focus on horses. And I got disillusioned with that too, realizing that I could help people train their horses. But if you don't address the human element, nothing really changes, right? So that was kind of the moment in time I remember where kind of everything that I'd gone through on my journey so far was starting to make sense. And I kind of realized this different, like different avenue I wanted to take. <laughs> my neighbor's outside. I think he's bringing me pie. <laughs> he's at the window. <laughs> he's going around to the other Do you want to go and get some pie? <laughs> That's sweet. No, it's okay. I think, I think he saw what I was doing. <laughs> he's going to ditch the pie on your doorstep and then the neighbor's dogs will come and eat it. <laughs> uh, hopefully not. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll give you another question that might, 
be attached to that or something else I've talked about. So what have you changed in the past five years that's helped change who you've become? There's so much I could go off of for this one. Um, So I think that where I'll go with this is when I actually, when I ended up winning Mustang Magic with my mare, my little black mare, Amira, and you might've seen some of those videos work. They got passed around quite a bit. Most of my clients come from finding out about me from those videos with Amira. It was like the dream of, of winning something like that had been something that was kind of on fire within me for a long time. And to realize the dream that I had been focusing on for, I mean, probably the past three years to get to that moment was a super high, like followed by a really low, low, that point of where, when you get the thing that you'd been chasing, the finish line moves again. And you kind of see past that, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow illusion. And so I thought, well, when I win this, I'll be happy. And when I win this, Mm -hmm. I'll finally feel like I'm a good enough trainer, right? Or, you know, good enough, period. I I am enough. (laughs) Yeah, right. So when that didn't happen, I'm like, oh, crap. Well, what now? Because I thought that I had to have this to have, you know, the life I wanted and feel a certain way. So, so that kind of led off into me, you know, going back to the untaming process as all weaving in, going back to figuring out, well, what are all of these layers that need to be peeled back for me to connect with the part of me that I thought would happen when I won that thing or did that thing. So that was probably the biggest change that led off into all of these other changes. Um, You know, when we talked about like fully feeling, um, that was a big shift for me, a big change, realizing the importance of my emotions, being willing to go to those dark places, letting go of the busy pattern, because you can't do a lot of work on yourself if you're always, you know, numbing yourself out through overwork and things like that. Um, Went through a lot of, you know, we were talking earlier about going through that phase where you kind of become awakened to these things in horsemanship and then you go into this judgment mode. So really seeing how whenever I'm judging someone else, what part of myself am I disowning, you know, seeing the world as a mirror and what lessons are there. Um, Talking about, you know, pushing and forcing things versus sitting back listening and then taking aligned and inspired action versus forced action, letting go of this attachment to being good and the self-righteous thing, you know, like, all of those things kind of happen in a cascade, I think, after that moment with Amira. So, wow. I, you know, that, <laughs> that Amanda's emotional resilience thing I went to is only about three weeks, three and a half weeks ago. And, and so I'm, I'm, I, I get these feelings I've never had before. So I don't know what they are. I've got to sit with them. And something that you said somewhere in there hit me in the chest like you were sitting on me. <laughs> I was sitting here. I was sitting here kind of holding it, just going, what the hell? I'll have to listen to this back again and figure out what it was you said. But, uh, whew, that was, you're heavy when you sit on my chest there, Maddie. <laughs> <laughs> I saw your hand there. I was like, either he's really touched by this or he's having heartburn or something. <laughs> no, I was having something going on. I was, I kind of zoned mm-hmm. out from listening to you for a minute, trying to figure out what, I'm supposed to be sitting with these emotions when they come up and so it was. <laughs> Yeah. It was pretty strong. It was actually, it was very cool. Um, yeah, what you're saying about that, 
one of the podcasts I did earlier was on books that have influenced me. And one of the books I talked about was a some sort of a men's help, men's self-help sort of a book called Backbone. But in that book, this guy said, most men spend all their life trying to get four things at the same time, material wealth, vocational success, health and love all at the same time. And, every, you mm-hmm. know, some people have three and they want the fourth one and some people have other three and they want the other four. But if I could just get that, I'd be happy. And he says, what the unlucky few get all four of those and they realize I'm no happier than I was before. Right. And so then he said, then the real journey starts and he says, what you've got to have to be a, you know, happy, complete human being, whatever, is number one, you've got to have a purpose. What is your purpose here on this in this life? You have a purpose. Number two is you've got to have a deep and authentic spiritual belief. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to be religious, but you have to have a deep belief in something larger than yourself. And number three is you've got to get rid of your bullshit. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. it. You, all you got all you got to do is have those those three. But but it was you you kind of had the same thing though. You had that thing. If I could just get mm-hmm. that there, when I get there. I'll be happy. And then you get there and you're, you're lucky because some people, just like I said in that example in the book, some people spend all their life wishing I could do that thing. They never get mm-hmm. to that thing and they always keep thinking that that external validation thing is going to make me happy. And you're one of the unlucky ones because you got the thing you thought was going to make you happy and mm-hmm. now you're down the rabbit hole, aren't you? Because now you realise wow. it's not out there that's the key, that's the in here, that's the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's wow. I wonder if you do have to attain that thing in order to realize the illusion of it, because the draw is so strong that leading up to that, I don't know if some, I mean, if I would have read it in a book or had someone tell me or multiple people tell me, you know, that's, no, you know, Maddie, that's actually not going to make you feel happy. Like you have to live it to some degree. And then, and then once you do get it, I think it is common too to get addicted to that success, right? And right away, you know, go on to, okay, well, what's the next thing? And try to just chase that finish line that keeps moving, keeps moving, keeps moving. So whether how many times you, you know, you have to go through that to to kind of get the message of mm, this probably isn't actually going to work in the way I think it will. <laughs> yeah, I, but I think you're right, though. I think no one could have told you that's not going to make you happy. I mean, you, yeah. you know, you, that's something you have to, that's a lesson I think you have to, to live through Um, there's a a Jim Carrey quote I've seen where he says I wish everybody could could become rich and famous yes that they realized that that's not it so you you almost have to become rich and famous before Mm -hmm. if you think being rich and famous would bring you happiness you almost have to become rich and famous to figure out that it isn't going you're not going to figure it out without if, if that if that's your that's your nirvana. If you think rich and famous is the thing that would make you happy, you almost have to become rich and famous in order for you to figure out it's not. And let's mm-hmm. face it, most people aren't going to become rich and famous, so you spend your whole life just in this, you know, hamster wheel of wishing you could be something else or someone else or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really profound. And, you know, like how changing your beliefs it's not about logic or reason. It's about living experiences that cause you to question all the rules you've been giving to your world. If this happens, you know, if X, then Y. Like once you live an experience that 
contradicts that, then that's when you really are left with questioning your beliefs versus trying to change beliefs on this surface level and defending things through, you know, logic or whatever. Like you just have to really live it. Yeah. I think once you, um, once you start to realize just the, all the programming you've received through your Mm -hmm. life, that is just programming. It's not, it's not the Mm -hmm. truth and Mm -hmm. start to, question that and I and I think you and I have both been lucky enough to have things happen to where we you know we got to we got to question things and mm-hmm. start to to look at things a different way and I really think you know it's it's then it's a never-ending journey but I, I think where you know how you said if someone had told you oh, winning that thing won't make you happy I wonder if it depends who told you you know if, mm-hmm. what if it was someone who'd done what you had wanted to do Someone who you really, you know, because because mm-hmm. I think you and I are in a, a very uh, lucky position and a very um, important position to where I think through our journeys we do have some influence over other people who might not be able to mm-hmm. come to those yeah. conclusions on their own and just sharing sharing um, our journeys with them, you know, people that may, maybe they look up to our horsemanship and they go, I love what you do with the horses. But then when you start down this other path mm-hmm. and they they kind of they kind of believe in what we're doing enough to kind of take mm-hmm. a left turn and follow us down that path a little bit. So I think we have an yeah. obligation maybe. Yeah, obligation. And I don't think it's futile too. Like I think I think people do – I. I'm seeing the duality of people do, I think, need to have a direct experience on some level. But by continuing to put out these different narratives into our reality and the story of the world and share our stories and these lessons, then I don't think it takes as maybe a an intense experience for others um, or repeated experiences. So I think that they'll they'll get to it quicker because there have been other people who have led the way yet they'll still have to have some sort of experience to live it. Um, and I think of my little sister, it's like as a little, as a older sister, you want to protect them from the world to a degree and be like, oh, if only you didn't have to go through all of these things that I went through. And it's really hard to sit back and see her, you know, going through some things where it's like, yeah, she really does have to live this, but because I've walked the road and have been there, maybe I can just, I can just kind of hold my hand out and kind of light the way a little bit so it's not so dark and lonely. And maybe she gets there a little bit quicker than I did, you know. Did you ever used to watch, what was the TV show, Bones? Did you ever watch Bones? No, I've heard of it. So this lady, she's a forensic anthropologist, so she works with the at the Smithsonian Institute. But she basically, they, they can dig up a body and she can tell the story of what happened to how they died and whatever. And she has a, a guy that she works with, he's an FBI agent. His name is Booth, and uh, you know it takes him about five seasons before Booth and the 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 lady anthropologist actually get together. There's all this you know innuendo and flirtation stuff for about five seasons. But Booth has a younger brother, and mm-hmm. I think he was in the army. But anyway, it's like we, they have a staff psychologist they've got to go see. And at one mm-hmm. time, Booth's in there talking to the staff psychologist, and he's complaining about his younger brother getting in trouble again. And and the psychologist says to him, the reason he gets in trouble all the time is because every time he gets in trouble, you flash your FBI badge and get him out of trouble. Oh. You know, he's, he's never had to sit with the the um, the things that happened because of his actions. He's never had to to deal with that because you keep 
bailing him out and you think you're helping him, but you're actually not. You're actually hindering his growth because he's not going to figure it out unless you let him. Uh, so classic. So I, uh, have you heard of Harriet Lerner? Yes. Harriet Lerner and her Only book. The Dan- okay. Well, her book, the dance of intimacy, I highly recommend. And she talks well, about, write you that know, one down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The dance of intimacy. And she talks about the patterns and family dynamics and uh, romantic relationships and everything like that. And, you know, the over-functioner and the under-functioner. So the over-functioner is, you know, the cop who's bailing his brother out. And then his brother's, you know, the under-functioner who's, you know, getting into trouble. And, and, and it's so interesting how both are a defense mechanism to protect ourselves, but both feed each other. So, an underfunctioner is going to underfunction more the more you overfunction. <laughs> um, so both reinforce each other's patterns, um, and it's you. You can just see through her book how it's such a block to really connecting um, with each other, and just the cycle that it perpetuates. And yeah, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that came up at our men's retreat was something called independence codependence and interdependence independence independence was i don't need you to be happy Mm -hmm. codependence is is i need you to be happy or something like that you know i I need to have some sort of validation from you to be happy that's codependent but interdependent was something like and i forget exactly how it went but it's something like i will allow myself to need you Mm -hmm. but what i need you I will allow myself to need you. And, and the guy teaching it said most people go, that you know, most couples kind of vacillate back and forth between independence and, and codependence, mm-hmm. whereas inter, interdependence is, is, um, is where you're trying to get to. And it was, it was a concept I'd never, I'd never seen before and I thought it was pretty fascinating. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The, well, the codependency thing is huge. And, um, you know, the, uh, you know, whether you're avoidant or anxiously attached, so your attachment style, which is so interesting too, how that impacts the relationship we have with our horses. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But the, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, What's interesting, though, is how are we really supposed to have these like healthy relationship dynamics, especially with a significant other, when we now rely on our significant other for in the past what we would rely on for a whole village or tribe as far as meeting our emotional needs. Now it falls all on the weight pretty much of our partner because we live very lonely and isolated lives. And so there's, I love how like the three versions of that, because you hear so often now in like new age wisdom, like you got to be happy on your own. You got to be functioning on your own before you have a partner. And to some degree that's true. And also it's like telling a deer to, oh, you you got to be healthy and okay on your own before you're able to go in the herd, you know, like there's this over-reliance on being independent in our culture and, you know, leaving your family and going off into the world and doing everything on your own. And it's so unnatural. We need relationships. We need connection. And so anyway, I, I thought you laid that out really neat. Yeah. It's a, you know, yeah. It's telling a mammal not to be a social creature. You know, yeah. Telling a social creature not not to be a social creature, and if some of the stuff I've been reading, I think it might have been these, like these shamanism books about, you know, 
pre-industrial revolution, you know, like there's since the industrial revolution, everything's totally changed. The whole family dynamics changed, the village dynamics changed, and getting back to, you know, one of the reasons we're all so messed up is because of, of, of that, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's no container. Like in the past, your town was organized around a church or a medicine man or a shaman, um, and there was a meeting place. And, and I mean, loneliness really is an epidemic. And the way that we structure towns even now, like architecturally, like they've been they've done studies too. like when people feel more ownership and, you know, more at home, of course, there, there's less vandalism, there's less violence because they feel connected to something. Now it's just so disconnected. We we don't really you know, that's even like the way, you know, you go to the store and buy a product, like you don't rely on your neighbor for things as much as we used to anymore. And, and that's a sense of community too, is actually relying on other people to meet your needs versus to make it into this very superficial transaction. Right. Um, so Charles Eisenstein, sorry to keep throwing books out, but we're no, you Charles Eisenstein, you would just flip out. I mean, he wrote the book uh, Sacred Economics, which I'm reading next. And the one I'm reading right now is The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. And he talks a lot about that, about how the economy is set up, how communities are set up, and what are some changes we could make to feel more connected and less alone in the world and meet those natural needs. I was so I've been teaching this online course for my students and it, one of the modules was on providing a species appropriate environment for your horse. Right. So like 24 seven forage and, and a herd, you know, a social life and, and all of these things that a lot of horses are, are denied, but then it's like, I can't look at that and then say, Oh my gosh. I mean, the way humans are right now is so species inappropriate. It's not even funny. So it's just like looking at all of the, you know, issues, I guess, going on in the world. It's like, if you have a horse who is having training issues, I, that's one of the first things you do, right? Is say, is this horse healthy? Are they sound? Are their natural needs being met? Or are they showing up some way in the training? You know, it's like, that is such a, the more kind of research and learning I do, it's such an important component. Yeah, I think it. I think it, these days it'd be much easier to have a um, species appropriate environment for a horse than it would be for a human. Yeah, well, it's going to take a lot of a lot of restructuring, I think, and and leading by example as far as that goes. And but yeah, and even just building a community around you know various you know not just location, but with what we do too, which I think you've done an amazing job of that. The community that you've created. So it's just people willing to to make that and see how important it is, I think, is the first step. Yeah, and that, you know, that community is, an, the one that I've got going, is an online community. And have, have you seen The Social Dilemma yet? Have you watched that? Oh, I love it. I now deleted social media from my phone. <laughs> oh, my goodness. If that's not horrifying, I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, so, you, so obviously you have Netflix. Um, yes. Okay. Have you seen my octopus teacher? No, but it's on my list because you do not. I, no, when, when you get off here with me, you've got to go watch. I don't care. Cancel the rest okay. of the day. Tell your neighbor <laughs> you'll bring his pie plate back later. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where there's life before my octopus teacher and there's life after my octopus teacher. You, wow. 
wow. I mean, even you is like, as connected as you are to nature, you watch that and just, I actually believe that octopuses could be much more highly developed than humans. Oh yeah. Well to think, yeah, to think that we are is kind of, I think the old story, old paradigm, like that we're on top of the circle versus in the circle, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's just mind boggling, but I watched that one wow. night and the social dilemma the next night or oh, like, well. Well, one or the other, but, but yeah, that social dilemma. You guys listening to this, if you haven't listened, uh, haven't watched it, you need to watch it. It's it will open your eyes, and especially the the part about like kids these days. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and that's the dilemma. Like if you think about, you know, your, you know, the 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 community you've got online, the community I've got online, this stuff's really good. It's it's got so much good, but it's got so much bad, and it's it's very very yeah. hard. To... Well, it's so powerful and addicting because you know going back to a species appropriate environment for humans and the loneliness epidemic, we're trying to meet that need in a superficial way. So we get a hit thinking we're getting that need for self approval or connection met online. And, and there's just that little hit, that little high every time. And, but you realize it's not a, a sustainable or a true way of getting that need met. So I think it's so important to, when we're looking at any kind of behavior with horses or humans to say, well, uh, like I know Dr. Susan Freeman says like WTF, what's the function? What is the underlying need? And if you look at like nonviolent communication or anything like that, it's all about what is the underlying need here? So much of behavior is because of unmet needs and what are other more healthy ways we could get that need being met versus denying it altogether. Right. Um, there's something you mentioned in there that kind of, when I was at that men's emotional resilience thing and they were talking about the king versus the prince energy, when they outlined it, they said, so the king has the vision, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, he does it for the good of people and then the the prince does it for this external validation. And I, I said, uh, I'm having a kind of an existential crisis right now because uh, I have this this thing going on. Like I'm just about to hit 20 million views on YouTube probably this week, I think. Um, I got this mm-hmm. thing going on to where it all started out, I know, from King Energy. It started out from helping people, just putting stuff out there for free on social media or whatever, trying to help people. But then yeah. you get all this great feedback. And, and now I, I said I'm – I've got to think, am I putting content out there because because of King Energy, because of I feel people should hear this stuff, or am I putting content out there because I think people will really respond to this? And I and I was like, oh, I'm having a bit of an existential crisis right now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because there's a bit of both, yeah. you know? It is both, and I've lived that. That's been a big, big thing for me where I can relate. I started out my work with horses because I just loved it. And it made me feel connected to something um, outside of myself, you know, and, and I did it because of the joy it, it brought me. And then it gets to the point where you get the validation. And especially for where I was at, my self-worth was so low that I really latched on to that and it started feeding me. And then it was a process of sit, sitting back and saying, okay, why am I doing this? And reevaluating the reasons that I was doing it. Um, but it's so easy 
to get lost on that train and to keep riding it and to just kind of mindlessly continue right into that point of just doing it to get more likes and more comments or more validation or, you know, approval versus developing that approval within yourself. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I love your, all of your awareness around that. And I think it, to an extent, it's always going to be both. We're always, there's always multiple motivations going on. It's, you know, with horses or humans, it's, it's very, black and white thinking to think it's it's this or that it's always multiple motivations that drive us to any behavior but which one is the the loudest you know that we're tuning into yeah when i came back from there i started looking at things i've been i'd been posting and i'm looking at them like no I, i'm pretty sure people you know these are things that i have i have figured out that have changed the way i work with horses and you know all the relationship stuff and i'm like no nah, people do need to hear this stuff i i am going to get mm-hmm. a lot of feedback and people are going to go yeah that's amazing that's wonderful but no people need to hear this stuff because i could think the all sorts of things i could do the way to 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 get people to go oh that that looks wonderful but it's the it's for me it's this connection stuff it's the mm-hmm. it's the beyond beyond training stuff that you know that the stuff that has nothing to do with with training but has to do with that that connection with a horse and providing that connection they need to feel mm-hmm. relaxed and content, you know. So yeah, so I've 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 got to be aware of that prince energy all the time. But I'm, I I think I've figured out that I'm, I'm doing yeah. it for the for the good. I just got to be. You just got to keep that shadow side in check, you know. <laughs> yeah, and just be aware of it. But I think you know people. I think love what you do too because they feel the authenticity behind it. But people just they know too. You know, they know if you're sharing something for the heart or from the heart or doing something from the heart or, or if it feels, you know, a little off or whatever. I mean, people, you know, it's so, I think the reason that, you know, what you've been doing is so successful is because you are sharing it from that place. And so it doesn't take as much forcing and contriving either when you're in that of just sharing like these profound realizations you've had. Right. I mean, that sounds like a very inspired action. You know, the funny thing was when I, uh, I'd always basically shared what I knew. Mm-hmm. So when I went down this, this rabbit hole, I was just sharing what I knew and everybody goes, oh, that's so, you know, you're so brave or whatever, sharing that stuff. I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm doing anything different than I've always done. I just look at things differently than I've always done. And it's funny, I, I, I never once thought, well, I wonder will people like this or not? I'm just mm-hmm. like, what I'm doing, it just turned out that, you know, like you said, a lot of the people we deal with are uh, women and a lot of times they're middle-aged women and I think they are primed for this stuff. They're at that point in life where this really, re- you know, that whole connection stuff uh, resonates with them anyway. So it kind of, yeah, perfect storm. But mm-hmm. let's, find, let's find you another question. I don't have too many more questions here okay. for you. Um, oh, this one would be interesting. What do you think the worst advice uh, <laughs> that's given in your profession? And when the so this these questions came from a Tim Ferriss book called Tribe of Mentors, and after there was a, a qualifier in that it said, "What do you think the worst advice given in your profession is?" And then it said, "Given that some of the professions we're in aren't actually normal sort of professions anyway, but yeah, what do you think the 
what, what, what do you think the, the, the worst advice or the, yeah, let's put it that way, worst advice given in your profession? Yeah, well, I think probably the most damaging or least effective is something around the lack of acknowledgement of like horses emotions or your emotions because they're both tied together so like i think is it john the john wayne saying of uh courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyways like you get bucked off gotta get right back on um so it's like kind of this it comes from this place of living in a culture where we don't give ourselves permission to feel our feelings and there's very little emotional intelligence there. So it's found to be an act of courage to suppress that versus listen to them. And so with horses, I think it can come out in the way where, you know, a lot of trainers will tell you, well, don't tiptoe around your horse. They need to get over it. And, and there is that, that dynamic of, as far as the tiptoeing goes, like always avoiding putting them in a situation, you know, where they can learn to respond versus react. But if it's used in a way where it's like, you know, it just leads to flooding where you're just throwing everything on the horse. Um, and, uh, I, I just see, I see that, you know, as some, as a piece of advice that that's, really harmful because for me it's always with horses it's all it's not just about how you know how how do we learn to be around horses better but how do we learn how to connect with humans better as well so I think that that's the ultimate magic and even the work we do with horses I, I always thought the magic was in what I had to teach the horse. And then I realized it was what the horse has to teach us about what it means to be fully human and how we can be better humans. And so anyway, um, I think that by following that mentality, you're missing out on a lot of lessons of, well, first of all, truly connecting with a horse and then also emotional attunement, right? And how important that that is in building any kind of relationship. I mean, emotional attunement is the number one predictor of relationship success. <laughs> I mean, so why are we not learning that skill and practicing it in every, you know, in every different territory? You know, what's funny is your answer to that question was almost exactly the same as mine. No way. That's mm. funny. Mm. Ooh, we have a lot of similar ones. We've been walking a similar path. But yeah. Well, it's, it's, but it's one of those questions uh, that's kind of set up, sets you up to give a negative answer, like what they're mm. doing it wrong. You know what I mean? And I could, I could uh, tell. So the, the, my, when I do these podcasts with people, I do it on a, um, a platform to where I can actually see the other person so I can see Maddie's face here. And when I ask that question, I could see the look on her face to where she, she's like, how do I say what I want to say? And tell me if this is going through your head. How do I say what I want to say without saying somebody's doing it wrong? Like without making this a negative yeah. rant. Was, were you, was that going through your head at all? I think it goes through my head in every interaction I have because it's so important because first of all, I want to be aware. Am I judging this? Because again, that's telling me what I'm disowning in myself and that I have some work to do. But also I know people aren't going to hear it if you come from a place of you're bad and you know, then shame gets in the way and it's blocked. And and I really don't believe that hurt, you know, that that you know, there's this evil versus good, bad people, good people. I, I think everyone cares and loves about their horses. Sometimes that can get mixed in with our own, you know, need to validate ourselves and things like that. But there's the saying that hurt 
you know, hurt humans, hurt humans or something, hurt people, hurt people, but hurt people, horse, hurt horses too. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, I don't think it does any good. Like you were saying to point fingers just leads to more separation and isolation. And, and uh, yeah, so I think that that's something I'm pretty aware of or try to be <laughs> pretty aware of in, in most things, but I, yeah. I'd, I'd say you're pretty aware. Okay. Next question. <laughs> what is your relationship with fear? That kind of is related to what we just talked about, I think, because when I was younger, it would be to suppress fear. And, oh, if I'm scared, I really got to, you know, go in there full force and and prove myself, right, to prove that I'm not scared because <laughs> it's this weakness. So I think that there's a duality around fear as well. I think that there's this narrative of we've denied the gift of fear, which is telling us you know, instinctually what feels safe and what doesn't. And I think that when you start not listening to that and stuffing it down, that's when you can get into trouble. So I think fear is something really useful to listen to. But there's a difference between like an intuitive knowing and like an ego fear. And so the other aspect of it is like, you know, who was it that said, do something every day that scares you? Eleanor Roosevelt, maybe, but um, you know, living outside of our comfort zone, because there is just this mental wiring to want to stay in our comfort zone and not push outside of that. So there's like that aspect to it. And then there's the aspect of, you know, whenever we're making a, ch- a choice or taking action, does this come from a place of love or fear? Does it come from connectedness or separation? Does it come from expansiveness or contraction? Does it come from, um, abundance or scarcity, you know, and just being really aware of what track you're choosing to act out of in every moment. So I guess that's kind of my different takes on fear and how it can, it can help us and, and also where we need to be aware of it. Very profound. Oh my goodness. (laughs) One one last question for you. And, and a few guys listening, remember, these are the questions that Maddie picked out. So uh, one last question is, what do you think it means to be a leader? Mm. Well, I think we've led into this very well because I think to be a leader is to be a visionary. You have to imagine a different future that people resonate with. And it's something I think that you're, of, you know, talking about the king energy, it's something you're of service to. It's not something that's serving you necessarily. Um although because everything's connected, it will serve you, you know, at the same time. But it's about, I think it's about painting a new version of reality. And I actually have a quote that one of my favorite quotes from that book, Untamed, um, is on like change and revolution. uh, Glennon Doyle writes, if those who are not a part of the building of reality only consult reality for possibilities, reality will never change. So it really is about engaging your, just your imagination of for what's possible without just consulting what's already out there. And I think that when you have a profound vision that is heartfelt and people really believe in, they're going to get on board and you don't need a bunch of tactics or gimmicks to make it something into something necessarily. It's just people, people get on board with that and they see, they see how important it is. And, um, you lead, you know, you lead by example and creating a place for people 
too, to, to come together in a way with it. So I guess that would be kind of, yeah, what my view on, on leadership is. And I think for me personally too, I'm really, um, inspired to lead like our youth, like young, young women out there. And, um, I take that as a very serious responsibility, um, that can really scare me thinking that, you know, little girls are out there like looking up to my work or what I do or who I am. Um, but it's also a very big honor that I take very seriously. So, um, yeah, it's my thoughts on leadership. I think what you just said about, uh, you know, about, um, you know, young girls and stuff like that, it's, I, I think that's one of the cool things about horses is, mm-hmm. you know, you're in a position to where the thing you do, and a lot of young girls are very, very entranced by that thing. And, you know, they wanted, they would want to do what you do, but what they have to learn along the way is mm-hmm. in order to do what you do, you have, they have to be, have to give up some of that program mm-hmm. condition stuff and, and, and let go of some mm-hmm. of that stuff. So I think that's, and, and I, and I found that with, you know, with what I do, um, you know, I get, I'm sure you do too, but you get, I get a lot of feedback like, Hey, is it doing your stuff? It's really changed my life. And now I get along better with my husband or my kids or whatever. You know what I mean? And I think that's because the people have made some changes within themselves. And I mm-hmm. think the great thing about the horses is most people that I've seen make those changes would never have elected to make them for their husband or their boss, mm. or their co-workers, mm. or their kids, or whatever. Mm. But the thing about horses, I think horses are good. They're very, very good at at holding back the thing that the people want and not giving it to them until they make some changes. It's like, <laughs> hey, I can give you this if you – they're like behaviour modification sort of thing. But mm. I, I've just seen so many people that have made, me included, um, so many personal changes – that they probably mm. wouldn't have done for anybody else, including themselves. They wouldn't have done it for themselves. But just, you know, like right. some of the stuff I've been doing the last couple of years, like suggesting people go out in the pasture and just sit there and don't expect anything. And like some of these people I think have never had a moment's peace. Like they've never mm-hmm. been still. Wow. Yeah. Without expecting stuff. So, yeah, I, I just think the horses are amazing that way to where they can. Um, yeah inspire us to make changes with themselves or inspire like in your case like young girls to want to do what you do and then they can learn your story and you mentioned earlier on about stories too with that um glenn and doyle book and you said that untamed how it's a lot of stories mm-hmm. and you said you said you listened to her on a brene brown podcast and i think that's one of the reasons brene is such mm. a good communicator in some pretty meaty sort of stuff mm-hmm. but she doesn't present it in a very scientific uh, 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 textbook type way. She tells stories about her own life, and I think I think the okay. storytelling. You know, my wife used to to tell me all the time, "You tell too many stories at the clinics. So you need to get more <laughs> stuff done. You tell too many stories." And nowadays, she's like, "Yeah, the, the the stories are there for a reason because it's it's not mm-hmm. it's not the fact whether you get something done, or you don't get something done. Is it do you you take it in? Do you?" Can you connect with it? Can you relate to it? And can it make can it can you relate to it in such a way that it would make you want to make that change? I think. Yeah, and see yourself in it. And 
you know, and the emotions that it it evokes in someone. It's a very non-Western way of teaching though, right? Versus here's steps one, two, and three, which are still important. But if you can use story to move people, I think that's always going to be more impactful. Like I can remember, you know, we've been at a few horse expos, I think, where I, you know, it, we always get busy when we're there and some I'll try to, you know, watch you or at least I'm walking by and like, I'll be able to listen for a few minutes and I might not remember exactly what you're working on, but I remember the story you told, you know, like it just, it's, it, it sticks with you. It has that sticky component and, you know, the way Brene does it too, it's just, it lets your boundaries and your guard down too. Cause she does it in such an everyday, like humorous way as well. So, yeah. Yeah, she's pretty down to earth. Um, one of the questions you didn't ask, didn't ask yourself, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What, okay. What is a what is a, a a strange or odd habit you have? <laughs> something out of something out of the ordinary you do, and if you don't come up with one, I'm going to give you one that I know you do. So. Oh really? Oh my gosh! Um, a strange. I feel like I do a lot of strange things. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Strange thing that I do, not with horses. Right? No, it does. It's not necessarily. It's it's anything. It could be anything. Um. Gosh, why is this so hard? Okay, while you while you're thinking, do you have? Do you work with? Uh, do you work with any animals that might look like a horse but have like black and white stripes on them? Oh, a zebra. <laughs> a zebra. Okay. Yeah. Yes. That's... <laughs> I mean, who, who, who has a zebra? Oh, or, my God. Do, do you have two of them? Uh, unfortunately, two? I lost my other guy. Um, oh, no. So I just had now. Yeah. It was pretty, it's really sad. They're, I mean, they're just my family. We've traveled and lived together and been with him since he was a baby so that was difficult but um yeah I have Xena and my well my the way that it kind of came about was my grandfather was the director of our local zoo and he was very into animals inspiring people um helping to educate people about them and children you know getting the experience to well getting the opportunity to experience them and things like that so anyway he had exotic animals uh, growing up, he actually had zebras and he had probably four or five out in his like, you know, on his farm. And I remember trying to get close to them when I'm, you know, little hanging out at grandma and grandpa's house. And you would get within, I mean, his zebras were so wild. It was like within 30 or 50 foot feet away from them, maybe. And you just step on a, you know, a leaf wrong or, you know, kick a pebble and they'd, you know, you know, just be off. So I think that's what planted the seed. And then after I did my first Mustang makeover, you know, I was very in that point of wanting to like, what's the next challenge and prove myself as a trainer. And there's, there's definitely a lot of ego in it, but um, I got, that's when I got Xena and then started working with her. And, and now, I mean, I, I don't think I'd be the trainer I am without the zebras in the sense that they really required me to think outside of the box of normal, what we consider normal in horse training, because you're just going to get hurt or it's just not going to work. I mean, it's just you're working with such a wild animal. When you think of the, you know, the Mustangs, they go back to maybe 500 years of natural selection type 
breeding and zebras have been, you know, evolving in Africa to survive some of the harshest conditions and fiercest predators on earth. So it's like, you just don't, you can't get away with, you know, things that maybe some horses would, would let you get away with. So they've really challenged me and asked me to, you know, try new things. And I mean, that's how I originally started any training with positive reinforcement as well and, and food rewards, um, because I was very much against the idea and the zebra that I've recently lost Zeus, it was like, trying all the normal things that worked on horses uh, weren't working well with him or I was having to use way more pressure than I wanted to and and things like that. And so it's like, I literally had to get to the point of being, well, I can't mess him up more than he's already messed up. So I might as well try food rewards and positive reinforcement. And then um, of course that kind of opened up a whole, whole nother world and a whole nother rabbit hole. But um, anyways, so yeah. That's a little bit on the zebras. So I know you've been on quite a journey with your positive reinforcement. Where are you at with that? Where are you at with that uh, now? Uh, it's been, oh my gosh, quite the journey. Well, where I'm at with it as a summary synopsis is that when I began with Zeus using food rewards, I had him and a Mustang, a 15 year old Mustang with like a bolting issue. Um, that was a really tough case. And those are the two animals that led me into using food rewards. And in the beginning, I kind of just put it on top of the training I was already doing with pressure and release. And then I started going deeper and deeper down the hole and worked with marine mammals and, you know, all that. And I feel like I'm constantly what excites me is learning new ways of doing things and different ways of doing things. Like if I train a thing, one way and it works. I'm like, well, great, but I'm going to get bored if I have to do it the same way a second time, almost like I'm always looking for different ways of doing things. So then exploring the limits kind of what, of what's possible and, and just reality testing things. So I, when I started getting deeper into positive reinforcement and really learning all the subtleties of it, I realized what, you know, how it was really its own language as well. There's, there's similarities, but in so, in so many ways, it's, it's also very different. So for the past like two years, I would say I've been like super focused on positive reinforcement. Um, and I wanted to learn all of the ins and outs and take it as far as I could. Um, not that I'm done with that, but to just to really learn it. And, and now that I feel like I've gone to that kind of extreme enough. Now I feel like I'm starting to find what, what is um, its place in what I'm doing. Cause I'm seeing the limitations of it as well as negative reinforcement. And, you know, earlier we were talking about the whole levels of awareness. It's like the black and white learning quadrant, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, like it helps us make sense of the world. But ultimately I think we need to get to that place of embracing duality and seeing you know, everything is existing in the other thing and, and how it's all connected. So it's been interesting because I've um, also been on a journey with six wild mares I've been working with as part of our running wild retreat from last summer. We got these Mustang mares in that we, um, you know, we do the retreat with them. People come and learn how to gentle a wild horse. And I used more positive reinforcement techniques with those horses than I'd ever, I'd ever had integrating all that I was learning 
And four of the six mares were ready to go by the end of summer. Um, and, and, the, and we weren't avoiding negative reinforcement, but we were using positive reinforcement and targeting and, and um, free shaping to get behaviors to begin with. And then you just translate it to a tactile cue and then you can, um, you know, make that into a negative reinforcement paradigm, but you're counter conditioning it with food basically. Um, so it's not avoiding pressure. It's just teaching them kind of in a different order. Um, yep. And four of the six made it. Two of the six I still have right now. And I'm supposed to be taking them back this week finally. And those horses have challenged me more than I ever, I mean, you just can't imagine like the, but it's been a gift because I've gone through so much of the positive reinforcement with them. I realized what I was like, why I was like, it required me to really step up my game in the area of positive reinforcement training and also seeing the limitations of it. Um, so I think when it comes, especially to integrating the trauma lens and all that Sarah talks about, um, it becomes really clear about more, more on the gray area and, and, and just every horse is an individual. Every person is an individual. There's so many factors, you know, that we could get into, um, about it, but I think more than anything, whether it's positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, it really comes down to, um, the relationship, emotional attunement, good shaping, breaking things down, you know? So I guess that's a synopsis where I'm at. It's been quite the journey. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just reminded me, um, last, when was that horse expo out here? Was that last year? It must've been last year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was 2019. So two, 2019, there was a, a, there's a horse expo in California that, that Maddie came to and she was part of a, a cult starting, a four ring circus, yeah, okay. so to speak. So there were four round pens in the arena and they, 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 were, they had these, all four of them had oh these God. Mustangs to, to start. And um, most of the people who were doing it were quite well known. And the, the commentators on this thing are very well known. If I mentioned their names, everybody would know who they were. And it was so funny because Maddie is, she's just going to do positive reinforcement with this horse in, in three days, I guess it is, isn't it? And there's a lot of dust and sweat and stuff in some of the other round pens. And Maddie seems to be doing nothing. And every time they, they went, one of the commentators, I remember he'd go and so-and-so they're over here and they're doing this and so-and-so is over there doing that. And so-and-so is over there doing that. And Maddie, oh, she's giving him another cookie. What is she doing? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was so funny. It was so funny listening to them commentate because they, they really couldn't figure out what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see so much potential for how positive reinforcement training it with horses could be really useful, really profound, help a lot of uh, people who feel more aligned, you know, maybe or feel more comfortable using those kinds of tools and things, but yeah, I think ultimately it's embracing the gray and yeah, there's a lot of gray in it. <laughs> it's the, it's the, it depends. And, and I, I do think yeah, both, it, you know, both sides of the coin, both, you mentioned attunement a minute ago, both of them, the more attuned you can be, the, the better it works. I mean, it doesn't matter which one you're using, if you're using positive oh, and reinforcement. 
you know, and that's the whole thing with like force free training or, you know, things like that. It's like you can use food in a way that is very forceful and very coercive and very you have to do this or else just like the same can be said for pressure. And, you know, Warwick, for me, again, I, I could go just totally all into this. But one really big takeaway for me, too, as far as seeing, um, you know, ethics and training beyond this method or that method is control, the amount of control that the animal has. So if you're using pressure, does the animal have control to avoid the pressure to begin with? That's where we get all of our lightness, right? And all the ways, you know, natural horsemanship or whatever you want to call it has served us. And also, are you diagnosing why the horse isn't doing what they're doing. Like what's your diagnosis and is your prognosis just to add more pressure and keep escalating? Well, if that's the case, yes, you're using pressure in a way where the animal has very little control. And it's been shown that stressors aren't necessarily damaging to an animal. It's whether the animal has control over that stressor or not. And that's when they don't have control. That's when they, um, you know, their immune system is affected there. They can go into shutdown and all of these other potential health challenges come up. But if you're using food in a way where the animal doesn't have control over that reinforcer and you're using poor shaping and you're not listening to those natural signs of the horse being at threshold, you know, then again, you're, you're just going into a different training method with the same, like the same controlling kind of mindset uh, and coercion where you're, you're just not listening to the horse. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? Is listening to the horse. Yep. And being able to read the signs and, yeah, see the signs, read the signs, interpret the signs. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that depends, you know, that that really depends on on who you are. Not like in that post that you talked about where I said it depends and mm-hmm. I said it's getting harder to answer the questions on, on Facebook these days because someone says, my horse does this, what should I do? And I said it depends. It depends yeah. on, you know, like how's your relationship with your father? Were you bullied at school? Right. You know, <laughs> all, the, all those things have a make up who you are and how you interpret the world the energy you bring into any situation and those horses can read your energy like nobody's business and so I had a number of people pm me personal message me like what did you mean by in that in that post like how's your relationship with your father and I'm like well it's not just about your father it's about you know do you carry any trauma from any part of your life because if you do and we all do to some extent if you haven't taken steps to heal that trauma, then a certain technique might will not work for you because of the energy you bring to the, the situation. So, yeah, it's right. just yeah. – I just find it so hard to answer questions these days. Well, and that's the challenging and can be paralyzing part of teaching or coaching, right, is the more that you learn, the more you realize, A, that you don't know, and B, how connected everything is so that it's not a simple answer. It's it's all these different layers. And I really enjoy teaching from the lens of the four elements because you can address, you can make sure everyone's always operating within the paradigm of looking at all the layers that could contribute this, right, to this. So like physical – mental, emotional, and spiritual, um, and how important it is to integrate on every every aspect because if you're not, you're never really going to get to the root of the problem. It's going to show up just in a different way. Right, and I, you know, I think when you're helping people, you, if you're going to help them, you've got to be able to help them on the level they're currently at. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's nice, yep, it's nice to know where they're at. Sometimes, the you know, it's kind of like Martin Black says, sometimes you can bring the human up to the level of the horse and sometimes you have to bring the horse down to the level of the human. And, and it's, yeah, you know, I don't, uh, think, yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think either of them are right or wrong, but um, yeah. you know, they're, they're never going to get to the next step if they, they can't, if you can't teach them stuff where they're at you know it's it's the black and white the yeah. yes right wrong you know that yeah. Paradigm. yeah it's the same thing i mean with horses it's just you you're meeting the horse where they're at meeting the person where they're at it's it's good you know under the lens of behavior it's good shaping whether you're working with a human or a or a horse and you know i something really profound too i think when you're talking to people um, talking about any kind of, you know, we, we're living in a time that's so polarized and, and, you know, trying to change people's beliefs about certain things, you know, or whatever. And it's like the first step to anything like that is first of all, letting go of the outcome, you're going to change them <laughs> and so that you can get to the first step, which is really just saying, tell me more about that. Why is that so important to you? And really realizing and valuing that we all bring a different perspective based on our experiences and that we really do all have, we all have something to uh, learn from every person or horse that we encounter. So. We surely do. Well, it's coming up two hours here, so we probably should. <laughs> we probably yeah. should uh... I feel like I, I thought we'd been chatting for about 45 minutes and I just looked and it's been an hour and 54 minutes. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Maddie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast here. You, you are the perfect participant for the journey on podcast because you have been on such an amazing journey. It's been, uh, it's been very fun to watch you and I'm very humbled that you came on here and uh, shared your story with us. Oh, well, thank you, Oric. Thank you for having me and for all the work that you do. And I really appreciated just our friendship. And it's always so exciting to have a conversation with you. We're igniting all these lights and ideas and books in each other. So it's, yeah, lots of alive ideas here. Thank you. Oh, it's very cool. So how can people find you, Maddie? Where 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 can they find you? They can go to mustangmaddy.com, M-A-D-D-Y, and you'll see all my social links there, but I'm Mustang Maddie pretty much on all social media, Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, even though I've I'm I've deleted social media apps from my phone, I'm still posting. So <laughs> Yeah, I did the same thing, took it off my phone. Uh, you know I did though. I took it off after I watched that thing, I took it off my phone, but then I had something on my phone I wanted to to post, so I had to Put the app mm-hmm. back in my phone, and guess what's still in my phone? Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, I gotta get rid of it again. So yeah. So anyway, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights. <laughs>